0: You're listening to Breaking the Silence, a podcast by Reach 10, where we're creating a culture of courage, compassion, and connection to overcome the shame, silence, and fear that often surrounds topics such as sexuality and pornography. We're your hosts, Chriselle Simons and Creed Orme.
1: Today, we're Breaking the Silence on Boundaries and Trust with Amanda Christensen. Thank you so much for being here today, Amanda. Great to see you.
2: Yeah, happy to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks. So as we begin, if you can introduce yourself a little bit, tell us where you're from, what you like to do, education, career, why you're involved in these kind of topics.
2: Okay. I am from Marietta, Georgia and came out to... Utah to go to BYU. I got my master's in marriage and family therapy from Brigham Young University and got married very quickly. <laughs> and uh, now I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I, have a, I own a therapy office in Spanish Fork called Hope Therapy. And I have two little boys, a two-year-old and an eight-month-old. That's so fun. Yeah. That's so fun.
0: And thank you for telling us a little bit about you and your background. We really want to focus on boundaries and trust, but we also want to paint the picture of like what recovery is. Mm -hmm. So just to start us off, like what does it mean for an individual? What does recovery look like for an individual? What have you seen to be successful? What role does
2: therapy play in that? Mm -hmm. Just kind of help us understand that. So I specialize in treating couples with affected by sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. So that's pretty much all of my clients. And I definitely have an ideal of what recovery could look like, but not everyone is up for all of that or can do all of it. But I will lay out what the best trajectory could look like. And that would be both partners doing therapy with me. I always do individual therapy with each partner and couple therapy. So I'll just usually do husband, wife, couple, husband, wife, couple, and then we'll alter that process however we want it to look. But in the therapy, we're doing the deeper emotional work that people need to do and understand about themselves. And then outside of therapy, I've seen a lot of progress. The best results when people are involved in a 12-step group and have a sponsor and are working the steps on their own and they're doing daily recovery work and that daily recovery work can look a lot of different ways, but it should involve step work and journaling or meditation and some spiritual work that's going along with their 12 step higher power. And then they're talking to their sponsors. They're talking to members of their groups consistently. so. If all of that work is happening outside of therapy, therapy is going to be a lot more effective, and we can really make progress and do the deeper work instead of just keeping people sober or just keeping people out of crisis. So I always say, use the free stuff outside of therapy, and then you know, bite the bullet and pay for therapy to do the other meaningful stuff. That's that's hard to do, and you need to do one on one.
0: I really appreciate that perspective, and I I love your holistic approach to it. I think that's super important. Maybe that's the rec therapist in me that's mm-hmm. like, it's not just about talking and like working through your problems. It's about really living and and experiencing life and practicing those new new coping skills and the new ways of self regulation and the new ways of soothing. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, so. so.
1: So, would you say with those who are trying to recover from sexual addictions that you work with, it sounds like they have to really work on lots of different things around their life, not just you know the addiction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It sounds like there's other things that maybe were lacking before that they're that they need to work on together mm-hmm. in order to be healthier. Yes. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and and a lot of addicts come in; they're really afraid that they're just going to be talking about pornography the whole time in therapy. And they don't want to talk about pornography the whole time. But if they're doing that outside work, like I would say, let group and sponsorship and everything get you sober, keep you sober, keep you in recovery and teach you a lot of grounding and just healthy living skills. So that in therapy, we're not really talking about the acting out very much. When it's important, we have to talk about it. When there's been a relapse or something, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll make plans. But what I really want to work on in therapy is the deeper emotional. Why, why did this addiction ever sustain itself? How do you emotionally cope? How can you learn to healthily emotionally cope? What impacted your lack of emotional coping or healthy coping and we'll do a lot of shame work. And then couple wise, we're doing all the connection and rebuilding trust and boundaries and things like that. So we really aren't talking about the addiction as much as people think.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And you mentioned a lot that I think that the recovering person needs to be doing. What does the, the spouse or partner of someone who isn't particularly dealing with this sexual addiction themselves, you know, acting out in those ways, do they need to do anything mm-hmm. to assist, help out
2: again? Ideally, this is the ideal that they would be doing almost all of the same things. Mm-hmm. And that's going to set the couple up for the best healing because then the partner of the addict is able to separate themselves from that addiction. They're able to work on their own, Maybe trauma from their past that's now being re triggered by the addiction and by the trauma, the betrayal trauma. They have a support system. They have steps that they can follow. They have a sponsor, you know. So I always encourage the partners to, to also go to group, to also have a sponsor, to also be working the steps, to also be doing daily grounding work that might be meditation, journaling, self care, step work. Because then the, the whole couple is a team and then they can really talk about recovery together. Because sometimes if only the addict is doing all this 12 step stuff that's, that's kind of not common knowledge, then the spouse is, is just like, okay, go, you go do your recovery thing. I don't really understand it or know about it, but you just go make yourself better over there and I'll be over there here. But it's better if they're both you know, they both come home from their groups and then they talk about it. Hey, oh, we're working on step three today. And, and, and I heard this in group and it was, it was hard to hear and it reminded me of this. And then, then the couple is really connecting over recovery. I totally understand when people are really busy and maybe can't work that into their schedules. So I'll still hopefully find a way for the couple to be on the same page and, really knowledgeable and educated about what recovery looks like, you know, what is the addict even talking about when they're talking about step nine or, or maybe they're talking about something that they learned in therapy that's lingo, mumbo jumbo recovery stuff. The, the partner needs to understand that. So unfortunately, a lot of times in couple relationships, we just send the problematic person to therapy. You know, like, oh, go fix yourself. And we do that with kids, too. This kid is acting out. This kid is being a problem. So then we send the kid to therapy. And we have to involve the whole system.
0: Amen. Amen. I think that's so, so important and so valuable as as we look at the whole system. And as we recognize that, bless our hearts, we all have inner children that need Mm -hmm. healing. We all have core beliefs that we picked up that... May or may not be serving us anymore, and the more that we can can heal all that, no matter what how we're coping now, mm-hmm. we need to heal those things, yeah, and oh, there's so much freedom yeah. that comes from that, yeah, I'm curious you talked you talked a lot about couples, and I'm so grateful for that that perspective on couples and how like it's a partnership and and both need to be working together for an individual, and this is something that I really wondered about. As I was seeking a therapist, Mm -hmm. because I'm like, I'm not struggling with pornography, but I have like every symptom of betrayal trauma, Mm. like on the books (laughs) and, and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm a single person and like, what does that look like for someone who's an individual, whether they're the one who's struggling with pornography or they're struggling with betrayal trauma because of like dating relationships Mm -hmm. or like, um,
2: family of origin stuff. Yep. What does that look like? Almost the same. Different, like you're saying. Yes, mm-hmm. we, we're not using another spouse or partner to to help out with recovery. But still, in therapy, I'm going to do the same exact work. Core beliefs, boundaries, inner child, past trauma. And then we're going to look at all the symptoms of the betrayal trauma. What's coming up for you how is this being triggered? We'll go through the actual criteria of PTSD and see that they really are experiencing real trauma and then we treat that. But even with single people, a single addict or a single person affected by addiction or any kind of betrayal, I still want them going to group. I still want them doing 12 steps. I am very passionate <laughs> about that just because when they don't, and and sometimes I have clients who won't, you know, because group is really intimidating and scary and working the 12 steps is a lot of work. And yeah, it's tedious for sure. Sometimes you won't, but, but it just really does give you the the, the best overall healing. But yeah, and it, it is a little more challenging when I have a single addict because Sometimes they have a harder time just because they don't have their spouse's pain motivating them. Mm. And so sometimes it can be harder to really, they want recovery really bad. They're done with the addiction. They just, they have the same exact feelings of, Oh, I hate this. I want to be done with it. I don't want to live like this. But, you know, sometimes they don't have that pain staring them right at the in the face. They don't have a wife or spouse crying and pleading, please. And so I'll just verbalize that in therapy and say, you know, you're missing that, that part of motivation. So we've got to find motivation that's about you, you know, about you changing. And that should be where it's at anyway for any addict. But honestly, sometimes it does help when they have real pain because... We know how much it really does hurt the individual who is the addict, but a lot of times they have, they're used to that, you know, they're used to hurting themselves and pushing down their emotional pain and being stuck in shame. So they don't, they're not really motivated by them hurting themselves, but they might be more motivated by them hurting their families. Does that make sense? Totally,
0: yeah. Especially as I think of like the stages of change, like mm-hmm. that makes so much sense. And sometimes like the first thing that helps us to change is how crappy everyone Constances. else's lives yep. are around us because of our choices. Yeah. And hopefully it gets to that like in- intrinsic motivation
2: mm-hmm. and that like internal drive to change. Yes. Um, with
0: everything that we're changing in yeah. our lives,
2: right? Sometimes I hope, this sounds mean, but sometimes I hope for something bad to happen sometimes that's what it takes. Somebody needs to lose their job, you know, because they get caught at work or get arrested. I know that sounds extreme, but, or, or maybe, you know, that their spouse discovers something or, or they get some kind of consequence. Sometimes that will really wake you up. And so I hate to say that sometimes I I hope something bad happens to you, but it's more like, I want you to get into recovery so badly, you need it, but you don't realize how much you need it until maybe the wheels start falling off.
1: Probably a lot of people are stuck in this like limbo area of like, yes, it's affecting me and it's painful for me in the end, but... I'm still enjoying an aspect of it. And I'm not there yet where maybe I want to completely change. I mean, it's kind of mentally that they want to. Maybe in their heart, they're like still wanting to hold on. And it takes maybe hitting rock bottom for them to realize, okay, this led me down here. I don't want to be down here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, how do I get out of this? So unfortunately, that does seem to be the case sometimes. Yeah, it's
2: scary. It's scary to change. It's scary to commit to all this work, Yeah. you know, it, it is a lot of work to change. And so if you feel like you could just coast and change later, then that's easier in the moment, but, but really you're, you're hurting yourself more and more. The more time that passes, the more trauma you're causing for your future partner or your current partner and for yourself. So yeah, but mm-hmm. it's it's scary to say. Here I go again. I've tried to stop this a thousand times in my life and now I'm going to try something else again or I'm going to try the same thing I've already tried. So, as
1: a therapist, I feel like I mean, I'm looking into going into therapy mm-hmm. as well. What do you do to help someone who, you know, is continues to try but is having a hard time to do so? I, do anything in particular to help like give them hope and mm-hmm. make sure that they're not like just completely shaming themselves and sad and just giving up completely. Like what kind of things do, would you say that you try to do that, to inspire hope and in continual effort?
2: I can give hope. I can give true hope. To be honest, when I first started specializing in this, I had a hard time with that because I didn't see a lot of change In the first few years, because change happens very slowly. So I was the type of therapist that was like, I want to see results, you know, and, and I'm not seeing results or I'm seeing tiny, tiny bits. And so it was hard for me to say, really, if you, if you do all this and we really do the hard work and you stay committed and consistent, you're not going to be perfect. You will, you will go backwards a bunch of times, you know, recovery is not this linear upward motion. Yeah, it was hard for me to say that, but the more experience I've had and the more people I've worked with, which is a lot now, I can honestly say this will get better if if we if we do all of this work and and you really just I always just say dive into the deep end. Some people ask me, should I just maybe do part of it or should I I'm like, "No, let's just go do for you know. it. This is it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the tools." You're with a specialized therapist. You've like, something has brought you here. Now is the time to heal. Let's do it. It can be done. I I see people change all the time, you know, and then everybody's timing is a little bit different. Sometimes I meet with people and I really can tell that the timing isn't right, Hmm. but it will be maybe in six months, maybe in two years. I don't know, but sometimes I can kind of feel that. That resistance, but I have a lot of hope for people. I I really I don't think I could keep specializing in this if I didn't see change and and see, you know, couples really come together and and be connected and feel happy. It would be too depressing if if I didn't see that.
1: Right. It's helpful to see hope here and there, and I mean you work at Hope Recovery.
2: Yes, that's funny. Yeah, that's (laughs) what it's called. Uh Yeah.
0: That's
1: really wonderful.
0: So I want to transition a little bit and focus on the boundaries and trust and what, what are boundaries and and what role do they have in, in recovery and even in healthy relationships? Yeah.
1: And if you can explain to just what boundaries are in general, like when I was growing up, I had no idea what boundaries were. I didn't, I wasn't taught what those things were.
0: (laughs) Seriously. my, My husband and I were having a conversation the other day and he's like, what are boundaries? And I'm like,
2: it's so simple.
0: And like, cause I'm just used to it because yeah. of the work I do. Yeah. And so, yeah, please explain that to us.
2: Well, we really overcomplicate boundaries. We think they're like this elusive thing, but really I think boundaries are very innate inside of us. It's, it's like, I see my two year old, if I do something he doesn't like, he says, stop mom, you know, no. And that's him. He's trying to set a boundary. He's trying to say, this is what's okay. And this is what's not okay. Okay. Problem is sometimes we grow up in families, or culturally, societally, we are kind of taught, no, you can't have a boundary about that. You know, you need to be polite and smile, or you know, just things that kind of make our boundaries get off. Like well, you're not
1: allowed to say no. Yeah. Like I mean, mm-hmm, especially in the LDS rude. culture, mm-hmm. you know, with all this volunteer service we're supposed to do or right. serving others. If if we ever Hold a boundary of no. We can feel guilty for doing that. Yep. Oftentimes I feel like, but I mean, we can talk about this later too, but um, I love this book called Boundaries. Yeah. I don't know if you like that, but.
2: By Townsend. uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And it talks about how Christ had boundaries, Mm -hmm, right? Absolutely. He wouldn't have been able to help people the the amount he did if he didn't have his own type Mm -hmm. of boundaries. It's kind of knowing when to say yes and when to say no, but. Right. But I'll let you continue. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: No, I love that point. And so when we've become more empowered to, to actually be able to voice, oh, okay, I can have a say in my life and my safety. So, so when we're working with these types of couples, what I'm really focusing on boundaries for is emotional and physical sexual safety. So they need boundaries. Addicts need their own personal boundaries about, you know, I know myself, I know my addiction, so I know that it is not safe for me to browse Netflix for two, you know, by myself. I just know that about myself, and so that's a personal boundary I'm gonna set. For partners, they may, they may, the more into recovery they get, they may realize, you know, when I start to follow him around in the car and track his location, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Sometimes you really do need to do that to find out what the truth is. But, but sometimes that can get me into kind of a crazy place and I'm just diving right into my trauma. So I'm going to set a boundary with myself that when I feel myself wanting to do that, I'm going to step back, call my sponsor, surrender, right? And then there are a couple boundaries, relational boundaries. And those are things that ideally both parts of the couple are agreeing on that, hey, this is the best way that this relationship can operate. We don't do this and we do do this. And when this happens, this will happen. So sometimes both parts of the couple don't agree on that depending on the level of recovery. So, so so then sometimes say a partner will have to say, Hey, when you behave that way with these addict attitudes, or when you're raging out on the kids, we're all going to leave the house and let you rage out by yourself but we're not going to deal with that mm-hmm. so i think that boundaries are amazing they help people respect each other because they're they're you they're voicing this is what respect looks like this is i'm respecting myself by setting a boundary and i'm letting you respect me by telling you this is what's okay with me mm-hmm. I think
0: that's so beautiful and I think what I heard specifically when you're talking about boundaries is that boundaries create safety Mm -hmm. and and they create security and and when we don't have boundaries and we don't like have the assertiveness to hold or voice those boundaries we feel like we get walked all over and we feel we become victims Mm -hmm. and we become just like really stuck and when we can figure out, okay, like, what do I need in order to feel safe? I think that's what I always come back to. Like, in order for me to feel safe right now, what conditions or what things need to change or be, like, held true that helps me figure out, oh, like, I'm not okay with my boss ever talking to me like that. Or my significant other, like, talking to me like that, Mm -hmm. or, or I'm not okay when my anxiety, like for anxiety, like I have boundaries about my anxiety. Like, okay, when I start going down a spiral, Mm -hmm. like I need to back off in order for me to stay safe and go do something else. And so, yeah, I thought that you explained that so beautifully and simply, and we will definitely link that book that you guys mentioned.
2: Yeah. Um, And there's, and there's one called boundaries in marriage too. Oh, perfect. There's a lot of versions of that same book mm. that are all really good oh wonderful we'll link those in the show notes on our
0: website mm-hmm. so that our listeners can, yeah, can find those superb book mm-hmm. such good resources because again it's not something that i learned in my household growing up of mm. like and and not that you even need to use the word boundary like i'm setting a boundary right, now. <laughs> right. Like, it doesn't need to be all uppity but just like the concept i think is really helpful in understanding yourself and relationships.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and as long as we can be clear about the boundaries aren't to control someone else, sometimes it's like, Ooh, cool. I could set boundaries on someone else. Well, not really. Like I said, you want the couple to agree on these things. And so sometimes it will be like the spouse saying, Hey, I really need this to change so that I can feel safe in this relationship and so that I can continue to be close to you. And the partner might be like, ah, that is really impacting my life in a way. I don't, I don't really want to do that, but I will because your safety is important to me, you know? So, so, but sometimes yeah, you, you can't control what how other people react to your boundaries. And so it's it's all about what can I do? What's in my power? And my power isn't changing anyone else. But I can make my own choices for myself. That sounds like my mantra
0: every day. <laughs> I can't change them. I can only yes. change me. Right. So That's yeah. healthy. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, I think oftentimes in especially a couple relationships or even friendships. Like I've run into this in, in my own life of being codependent.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: if you don't know what codependent means for our listeners, I'm sure you'd have a better definition. But it's, it's where you take on somebody else's problems and view them as your own and that you need to fix them and that someone else's life kind of becomes your own. Mm. And you're trying to fix somebody else and trying to take on responsibility that isn't yours. I feel like that would happen probably quite often in, in a couple relationship.
2: All the time. Do you see that a lot? Yes. Yeah. And
1: how do you help that spouse know or know what is healthy boundaries so that they're not trying to fix a problem that really isn't theirs to fix, right? It's still their spouse's problem. Mm-hmm. They, they definitely need to do their own work for themselves, but to to help the, the system, the couple relationship. But yeah. what kind of... How do you help a, a spouse that can be codependent? How do you help them out?
2: That's a process for sure, because I think we we all feel a responsibility toward our partners. Like we're supposed to make them happy and we're supposed to be good spouses so that, you know, we just think that we can solve other people's problems, which like you said, is codependent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unhealthy. So we need to get, and then I don't want it, the pendulum to swing too far over mm-hmm. either to like, well, that's your crap. Go figure it out.
1: We don't want independence or codependence, maybe interdependence. Interdependence that be right? is, okay.
2: is kind of a really good balance where both partners are affecting each other. It's, it's kind of crazy to say, okay, you don't affect me at all. I'll just be over here and you be over there. That's not really... The ideal, sometimes you do have to completely separate yourself and just for a time. But yeah, ideally the spouse, the partner is doing their own recovery. And if they are doing the 12 steps, the 12 steps are all about, I cannot control Mm -hmm. my addict partner or I cannot control anyone else. And then I really just from a therapist perspective, I really try to be very clear about where the responsibility is getting divvied up. I will say, I'm in charge of this part, so you don't have to worry about this. He's in charge of this part. No one else has to worry about this. I'm not doing it for him. You're not doing it for him. He's got to do the work. And she's in charge of this part. You know, and when somebody tries to take someone else's part, I will just say, remember, I did this part. You don't have to worry. You know, I'm doing this in therapy. So you don't have to be anxious about it. I got it, you know, Mm -hmm. or he's doing the work. You don't have to take it for him. You just do yours. And like the better you do yours, the more you're going to help each other and that couple relationship. But yeah, we do have to separate. What's my side of the street? What's yours? And I don't need to do it for you. And I don't need to define myself by what you're doing or what you're not doing.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah. That feels very good. Organizing it in that way, mm-hmm. setting clear expectations yeah, so that everybody's on the same page. Right. Very cool.
0: Interdependence takes a ton of trust. Yes. And so how do we rebuild trust when it's been broken? And I would love for you to talk about that in like a couple relationship but as well as like I, as, as a single person, I, I really struggled with that question of like, mm-hmm. I have no one to trust because I'm single and I don't even want to pretend like I'm going to practice that in a relationship right now because I feel so unsafe. So how do you rebuild that?
2: Yeah. Okay. So that's a perfect way to talk about trust, especially as a single person. So I want people, we always want to jump to the couple trust first, but actually first I want people to start trusting their higher power, whatever, whatever, whatever your higher power is, start trusting your higher power. That alone can take a long time, you know, because you might feel abandoned. You might feel forgotten. You might feel wronged, angry. (laughs) I mean, all of that is completely appropriate Mm -hmm. and normal. And so that process, then you can start working on restoring trust with yourself and learning what your gut is telling you or what, You know, the spirit is telling you, or however you want to name that, restore trust in yourself that you are a capable person of worth who can make decisions for yourself and you don't have to be the victim of your story and controlled by the things you can't control. And then, if you're more solid in those areas, then you start. Restoring trust in the couple relationship, and that's its own long, long haul. (laughs) That I want to be clear that that's not linear either. I mean, that's going to go backwards many times in the course of your relationship, and that's okay. It doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel good at all. You, I mean, we all want trust to just be like building, 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 and I'm going from zero all the way up to a hundred consistently, but. No, it, it's going to go up and down based on a lot of things. And that's how a relationship operates. And that's okay. It's like when the trust is down, how do I keep myself safe? When the trust is, has been rebuilt, how do I let my guard down and allow myself to let go and trust my partner? And so things that contribute to that are going to be consistency, time, just seeing the little things, seeing the big things. There's tiny ways to build trust. There's huge ways to build trust and all of it matters. So sometimes the addicts will be very impatient, like, look, I'm sober. Why don't you trust me? And this house is like, well, you're raging out on the kids every day and you're screaming at me and you're still belittling me, you know? And and so it's like, we need, we need a lot. There's a lot of different moving parts to build that trust, but
1: yeah. I think it's important to recognize, as you were saying, too, that all couples need to work on trust together, not, mm-hmm. not just couples that struggle with sexual addictions, right?
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's just a matter of relationships. It's like, are you going to be on time to pick me up for the movie? Right. Or like,
2: yes, <laughs> are can you gonna, I count on you? Can
1: we go to church at this time? Or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's lots of things that you have to build with relationships, and no relationship is perfect, and mm. the focus is just working on it together and loving each other, right? <laughs>
2: Yes. Yeah. My favorite part of trust and this comes way later. So this is like when a couple has been working in therapy for maybe a year or maybe six months. So, so don't expect this at the beginning, but really learning to empathize with each other and be attuned. Attunement is huge in what I talk about with couples, which is just, I'm tuned into you. I can focus on you because my stuff isn't first, you know, and I'm not in a trauma state or in a defensive addict state. And so I really can just be grounded and talk to you and listen to you, truly listen to you, understand you, and then empathize. And that is like, that's the signal with couples. Whenever I see real empathy, I will highlight that so hard. I mean, I will just tell the couple, this is a good sign. Look what just happened, right? And the more that happens, the more people can lean into that trust and empathy is kind of hard to fake. So with betrayal trauma, it's hard to trust. Oh, are they, are they being real right now? Or are they manipulating me? But like attunement and empathy is, is hard to fake. You can feel when someone really cares about you or but probably not at first. Like I said, you have to build up that trust in yourself. Like, Oh, can I, am I just terrible at reading people? You know, like a lot of betrayal trauma, you'll, you'll feel that like, Oh my gosh, I must be really totally off base because I trusted him. Anyway. So that empathy is really what I'm looking for. But like I said, it takes a lot of work to, to really get there with couples so that's
0: so so wonderful and i i really appreciate how you you brought it back to ultimately we have to have to be able to trust our higher power in ourselves Mm -hmm. and no relationship can be built without that that foundation to begin with Mm -hmm. period it's been my experience and that's what i see over and over and over again just to like kind of bring it all together, what do you what do you view
2: as a healthy view on sexuality? Like what is healthy sexuality to you? Healthy sexuality, a healthy sexual relationship with yourself, and then how to bring that into a partnership. Those are kind of two different things. So healthy sexuality would have no shame. You're understanding the the purposes for Why are we sexual beings? What's the point of that? Um, You've gotten peace there with God. (laughs) That alone is like a, a, a whole project sometimes. You've maybe found peace about not being a victim of your addiction anymore, like working through that anger and abandonment about, you know, this is not fair. I was only 7 years old when i got exposed to pornography all of that is super valid but you know as you work through that you'll you'll kind of get to a peaceful place about okay it's okay that i'm a sexual being that doesn't make me bad or wrong that doesn't make me overly sexual or you know all these negative labels that you put on yourself same with as a spouse it's okay to be sexual but you're not being wanting to be objectified or objectifying as as the addict, lust is you have progressive victory over lust. So if lust is uh, playing a huge part in your life, then I, I would say you're not healthy sexually individually. If you have all of that, you know you have this healthy understanding of how am I a healthy sexual being by myself, then, you know, how do I bring that into a partnership and give and take and listen and empathize and treat that person with respect and have boundaries around every single part of it? That's going to be a healthy sexual relationship and honesty, communication, integrity. I know I just listed like a bunch of <laughs> great, awesome things, but yeah, it takes a lot of work. I yeah, guess all the pieces a to lot it. of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that
0: like we can work on and over time, like, mm-hmm. and have as we're working on it. We don't have to be perfect at it in order to. Like, there's not this like pedestal of healthy sexuality. Yeah. I think yeah. healthy sexuality is being aware of those things and working towards them mm-hmm. and building that always. So I think that was perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been so wonderful to hear and to learn from your wisdom, and and to feel your compassion for people mm-hmm. and and for healthy relationships yeah. thank you yeah it's
1: yeah. so wonderful to have you do you have any last final words about you know uh any motivation for how to to set boundaries and trust and, <laughs> and, and hope at all for for our listeners
2: um yeah just do it i feel i, I just want to yell like shy a buff just do <laughs> it <laughs> honestly it is oh you have to do it you have to do it uh-huh. and you can do it and educate yourself so many people want to make changes, but they just haven't met the right education or the or the right therapist who's who knows about this problem so sometimes I see that they've they've tried a lot of different things, but they're going down the wrong paths kind of and then the second they have the right tools they just go it's like fire so keep trying you know you'll have to try the rest of your life. this will be. This is not a quick fix. This is not even a fix, I would say. Like, never have I had a couple where I say, okay, you're fixed. You know, I just say, okay, I think you don't need me anymore. You know, mm-hmm. you know what to do. And you might, you might need to come back over and over and that's okay, but you have the tools and, and now you just gotta be consistent and, and keep going, but it's never gonna be over. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing sometimes when i say that people are like oh my gosh for the rest of my life it's like yeah progress work on yourself for the rest of your life
1: that's what it is yeah, yeah. Well, we're all here to do that
0: that's exactly what every relationship takes mm-hmm. regardless of what you've been through it takes mm-hmm. constant progression that's perfect yeah thank you so much you're such an angel oh thanks. <laughs> thank you Amanda. that was great awesome. yeah thank you Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence by Reach 10. Help us create a new culture of connection by sharing what you heard today with at least 10 people. Please help us reach more young adults by going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reach 10 is a nonprofit. You can help support this podcast by donating on our website and following us on social media. We share these views to open the dialogue on these tough issues. We are not professionals, and the ideas shared on this podcast should not be taken as professional advice. The opinions and views that our hosts and guests share do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach 10, and we don't guarantee the accuracy of any statements you hear. Reach 10 is not responsible for your use of information heard on this podcast. We keep learning and invite you to join us as we build a more open, compassionate, and courageous culture.